0: welcome to the ToxPod. I'm Tim Scott.
1: I'm Peter Stockham. So we wanted to do an episode about synthetic cannabinoids. It's such a huge group of compounds, relatively new. Not everyone knows about them. We don't know everything about them. So we thought we'd speak to an expert.
0: And we've talked a little bit before about the analysis of synthetic cannabinoids on the podcast, but we really wanted to get into the history and the pharmacology of them and what kind of interesting research is happening at the moment in different places around the world. So we've asked Dr. Samuel Bannister from the University of Sydney, and he's team leader of a medicinal chemistry group there doing some very interesting work with cannabinoids and synthetic cannabinoids. So thanks for joining us, Sam.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me on the the podcast.
0: You've done a lot of work in your career with cannabinoid-related compounds, and just tell us a bit about your background and how you got into cannabinoid research.
2: Yeah, so my background's um, actually medicinal chemistry. So the design of, of new therapeutic candidates and, and potential medicinal compounds. Um, and I sort of became a, a cannabinoid scientist by accident because uh, I had a colleague um, from my PhD days who was working in a, a government measurements lab. And he said they had a, an interesting case of a new import um, and it featured sort of a subunit of the molecule that was similar to things I'd worked on in my PhD. So we made a little bit of this material and um, a sort of a reference standard and started screening it. Um, and, and in that process, realized that actually it looked uh, a little bit like um, some of these synthetic cannabinoids that have been showing up for a couple of years, but it was completely unknown. So this is a compound that had been, you know, imported into Australia, but was entirely chemically novel. Um, so we published a little bit of that story um, in ACS Chemical Neuroscience. We've done a little bit of structure activity relationships work. So tweaked a few regions of the molecule to see how those changes uh, impacted the cannabinoid activity. And we published that work um we didn't disclose everything but for the work that we did disclose um, about six months later i got an email from the head of the finnish police saying they'd intercepted a kilogram of one of the compounds that we disclosed labeled sdb006 yeah. um, as well as a fluor- a fluorinated compound that we hadn't disclosed so that was sort of interesting so that sort of informed us that people were, were reading our research um, and, you know, possibly using it for, for nefarious purposes but also that they were they were also thinking about similar medicinal chemistry strategy. So we made a fluorinated analogue um, and that had also been detected despite the fact that we'd never published it. So yeah, got us thinking about how how we could do some good in this field by sort of proactively generating reference standards and, and characterising the pharmacology of these things.
1: So you've also worked a little bit in PET receptor work, is that correct?
2: Yeah, so I'd um, like I said, my background's in medicinal chemistry and I'd, I've also done a little bit of radiochemistry, which is um, the design of ligands containing uh, radioactive isotopes um, for the purposes of imaging. So the, the main area that I was working in was a positron emission tomography, PET imaging. Um, and probably the, the most well-known example of that would be um, FDG, which is, is very widely used in oncology, so for visualizing tumors based on their glucose uptake. Um, so I went to Stanford for a couple of years, and I was initially there doing um, some radiochemistry work. Um, Looking at at targets like cannabinoid receptors and designing traces for those and doing some PET imaging, um, but also doing a little bit of sort of basic synthetic cannabinoid pharmacology and chemistry uh, and a little bit of toxicology and structural biology by collaboration, all focused around cannabinoids as well.
1: So you certainly hit a good spot in history to start doing this sort of work, Sam. It's really, it's not a fortunate thing, of course, but certainly it's taking off at the moment.
2: Yeah, there's there's definitely no shortage of, of work to be done. The rate of detection of these things has obviously sort of increased exponentially. There's been a bit of a decline in the last couple of years, but uh, the decline in in cannabinoids and cathinones has sort of been offset by an increase in the number of um, fentanyls and other classes of opioids that are being detected. So yeah, the the new psychoactive substances field is, you know, is a pretty busy space.
0: So let's go back to uh, the beginning then with these synthetic cannabinoids. Where did they come from?
2: So the the very first two compounds um, were detected by a toxicology lab in Freiburg, if you're familiar with the uh, work of Volker Alvater and his team. Yep. Um, So they'd purchase some of these herbal blends, which is how these things were sold, typically, you know, Damiana leaf or something that's laced with these synthetic materials. Um, And the packets would always disclose them as, you know, being not for human consumption, incense only, you know, things like Spice Gold and, and K2 were the early brands. But Volker and his team were a little bit suspicious that perhaps there was more than just a purely herbal blend here because people were claiming to get very intoxicated. And so they spent some time um, looking at the the chemical composition of these substances, and ultimately they detected two compounds. The first one was JWH018, and the other one was a a Pfizer compound, an old Pfizer compound with a a CP prefix, um, a homologue of that. So the Pfizer compounds came from pharmaceutical work in the 70s and 80s where they were modifying THC to try and find new analgesics and the JWH-018 compound um, is a completely unrelated structural class that comes from the lab of John Huffman who was at Clemson University at the time so he was doing very very basic research around structural features that confer CB1 binding and functional activity so it's a very traditional medicinal chemistry work and then it seems like someone's decided in the sort of mid-2000s, no one's really sure exactly, that perhaps you can take some of these synthetic cannabinoid compounds, uh, blend them with herbs and sell them as a sort of cannabis substitute. So they'll be intoxicating, they're, you know, they're very psychoactive, but much harder to detect in a toxicological sense.
0: And you mentioned before how much they've been multiplying since that time. They've really taken off. How many are there now?
2: Yeah, so, so the best stats that you'll find probably come from the United Nations Office on Drug Control, UNODC. They put out a world drug report every year with a lot of these statistics um, and also the European Monitoring Centre for Drugs and Drug Addiction and their early warning system. So based on the, the EMCDDA data, they're now monitoring very close to a thousand new psychoactive substances in total and the formal reporting um, suggests that cannabinoids make up about a third of those So the two biggest classes by far are cannabinoids at about a third and then cathinones, which are a class of stimulants with similar sorts of numbers. So we're talking about uh, currently about 350, 400 compounds. Um, And of course, there are possibly substances out there that we don't even know about yet.
1: So these compounds, when you look at them, they don't really even look like THC at all, do they? But they're all sort of a similar size, same number of carbons and very uh, fat-soluble, lipophilic. But THC, does that actually look anything like the active agent in the
2: endogenous system. No, so there's sort of three classes of cannabinoids, um, and, and when I've presented some of this work, I'll often break them up into these three discrete groups. So you have within the the endogenous chemicals that signal through the cannabinoid system, um, you know, the endocannabinoid system. You have a number of um, fatty acid derivatives, so things like anandamide, 2 glycerol. So these are uh, very structurally distinct from THC, very lipophilic molecules, and they. Adopt certain uh, folded conformations that allow them to access some of the same receptors and enzymes. But yeah, very structurally different to THC. Uh, THC is this terpenophenolic natural product, a very greasy looking molecule, and it has a number of analogues, both synthetic and naturally occurring, that can be considered cannabinoid activating ligands as well. The third class that you have is structurally distinct from both of those and typically features a sort of indole or indazole core, you know, some kind of heterocyclic core. A carbonyl-derived linker, and then sort of two pendant groups. So it, it goes to show you how sort of promiscuous the cannabinoid receptor is in a sense um, in terms of its orthosteric site, that you can have three very structurally distinct classes of molecules uh, all capable of um, efficaciously activating that site. So what exactly does the endocannabinoid system do? Uh, what doesn't it do? I mean, it's, it's really <laughs> involved in... It, it's very fundamental. It's very conserved in an evolutionary sense, um, so that really tells you a lot about its, its essential role, but it controls um, all sorts of aspects of mood, sleep, satiety, um, a whole number of things. And, and we see this in dysfunctions of, of the endocannabinoid system as well. So I guess the most sort of well-reported case is remodobant. So the, the idea with remodobant was that it was developed as a CB1 antagonist, so to block the CB1 receptor sites in the brain. And the idea is that it would stop people from eating too much. So uh, it was marketed as an obesity treatment and then it um, was eventually recalled from market because they realized that people who were taking this substance you know might be losing weight but they're also killing themselves in um, higher than average numbers so Mm. it was actually messing with you know with the emotional state of a number of people so that should should give you some idea of just the sort of diverse roles that the endocannabinoid system is involved in
0: and the synthetic cannabinoids which we often call them synthetic cannabinoids syncans you know as sort of shorthand but really the best name for them is really synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonist, isn't it? Because that that explains the role that they're having. It's not about their structure necessarily, how they're grouped together. It's more about uh, how they're affecting the body pharmacologically.
2: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I think that is a really good distinction. So we refer to things as synthetic cathinones if they're not occurring in nature, and that's the vast majority of them, and people have sort of applied you know the same designations to opioids and to cannabinoids uh, but actually you can have synthetic cannabinoids that are antagonists say of the cp1 receptor and they won't be intoxicating um, so i think I, i've had good conversations with um, simon brant uh, about this and you know he's a he's a chemist in in the uk who's very particular about his language and and he um, is very adamant that we should call them synthetic cannabinoid receptor agonists you know the acronym scras because it's it's a much sort of cleaner um, subcategory than just the entire class of synthetic cannabinoids themselves
0: yeah it's just easier to say sincans when you're talking about it
2: (laughs) and i think i think people toxicologists especially understand um, that this is sort of shorthand for a specific class of substances
0: so what are there any rules about what is included in this class and what's not because obviously some have more affinity for you know the cb1 cb2 receptors than others are there any rules for when something gets included in this class called scras
2: no, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules. I guess the, the criterion would be that it must be capable of activating the CB1 receptor. Um, and any of these substances must be capable of activating the CB1 receptor because it's the, the CB1 receptors in the brain and activation of those that leads to psychoactivity. So even then, you can find interesting cases where you know a compound may activate a receptor in vitro so in our our cellular models but it doesn't actually have any effect in a mouse or a rat and that may be because it's metabolized very quickly or it's not able to reach the brain because of its properties so i'd I'd say any substance that produces a sort of central cb1 mediated effect you know in a rodent is very likely to be psychoactive in in humans and that would be considered an SCRA.
0: yeah that brings up an interesting point about a lot of the research that's done um, in this space with any new drugs i guess is looking at cell models, not looking at in humans necessarily, living humans. So what's the correlation there between, you know, how, how likely is it that the results you get from using those kind of cellular studies will then transfer to in real life on humans?
2: Um, it's, it's pretty good. We we use a screening cascade. Uh, so the first thing we'll do, and this is so that we can get uh, the maximal amount of information with the sort of minimum number of assays. So the first thing we do as we're building a library is um, we'll do some binding affinity studies with Michelle Glass's lab at the University of Otago. And this will just tell us whether a compound actually interacts with CB1 or CB2 receptors. If it does, it, it may be in a sort of agonist or antagonist type mode so then we'll go on and do some studies uh, in collaboration with Mark Connor's lab at Macquarie University um, and he's got a flipper assay that can uh, indicate that the compound uh, is acting as an agonist rather than an antagonist so then we get some idea about its functional activity. Uh, we've also started collaborating uh, with Christoph Stover's lab at Ghent University and they have an alternative nanoduciferase based um, assay that's really pretty clever So we can get a lot of information early on in in various cellular systems about whether it can actually activate the receptor. And then the final stage is to do some kind of rodent biotelemetry. So this uses a a radio biotelemetry probe that's implanted in a mouse or a rat, and that can give us sort of real time physiological information following dosing of one of these substances. So we typically see um, characteristic effects uh, in mice or in rats if we're getting central activation of CB1 receptors. And that includes things like a, a decreased locomotion, decreased nociception, decreased heart rate, decreased body temperature. So we can actually quantify these things using radio biotelemetry and show that a given compound is having a a central CB1 mediated effect.
1: Are you saying you're synthesizing new synthetic cannabinoids or ones that have been seized and you're just testing them?
2: So we'll typically look at the seizure data um, and we collaborate with various people at the EMCDDA um, and other government agencies to figure out sort of what's out there currently. And then we'll look at not just the compounds that are detected, but systematic analogs of those. So we use sort of a matrix structure activity relationship approach where we'll systematically modify two different sub features of those molecules to create a more sort of encompassed library of of likely analogs, things that are related to existing molecules that might appear in future. Um, And we'll test all of those proactively without necessarily releasing the data publicly so that we can have an idea about um, structure activity trends and provide that information to various collaborators around the world.
0: So what are some of the common pharmacological effects of SYNCANs?
2: Um, well, obvi- most of them are, are psychoactive, or they should be if, they, if they're truly SCRAs. So you see a lot of the same effects that you see with THC, um, which is unsurprising. So you get, besides intoxication, you get sort of reddening of the conjunctiva and other traditional uh, cannabis-like effects. But what's really concerning is that you see a lot of um, adverse effects that are definitely not common to cannabis. You know, We certainly don't see people using cannabis, but, and by that I mean THC. We don't see people using those products and, and dying. There is there's no real sort of fatal overdose that's ever been recorded for THC. Whereas with these synthetics, we definitely see quite a few mass overdoses and mass fatalities. Uh, seizures are very common. And and if you have speak to um, emergency physicians, they can give you a rundown on, on the most common side effects that are seen. It's actually a very different profile to THC itself.
0: Yeah, there have been quite a few deaths reported from Syncans. It can be very difficult to tell i mean this is sort of the space we work in do we do a lot of post-mortem toxicology and it often can be difficult to tell based on the level of uh, the drug that's there whether or not that was involved in the death or not because you might not know all the circumstances surrounding the death it seems unclear at the moment whether there is a the level of drug that you measure in the blood corresponds necessarily to the effect what about in um, the studies that you've done is there a dose response relationship Uh, Is it clear for most of these compounds?
2: No, I'd say it is pretty tricky. In in a post-mortem sense, you obviously have all of the partitioning effects, which are sort of complicated further with very lipophilic drugs like these SYNCANS. Uh, But yeah, there's no clear level that I'm aware of. So we try to correlate, you know, there seems to be some sort of correlation between in vivo potency um, and some of the adverse effects like proconvulsant activity. But obviously we're not aiming to take these substances up to a level that will kill a mouse or a rat. So when we see any sign of a, uh, of a seizure, um, we, we never go past that dose. But there does seem to be, from that data, some correlation between CB1 potency uh, in vivo dose and, and seizure-related activity. But it's also not consistent across molecules, so we're still trying to elucidate what's going on there. So
1: can you get an idea of what parts of the molecule make it more toxic?
2: Yeah, that that is what is unclear. So because we're talking about hundreds of molecules and, and they've all been assayed in, in different systems by different groups, Uh, There are no really clear trends. The only factor that seems to sort of unify toxicity to some extent uh, is potency, but that's not across all molecules. It doesn't seem to be related to any particular structural feature.
0: Is the testing of this standardized across other labs in terms of determining potency, efficacy, etc.?
2: Um, Some assays are more standard than others. So radioligand binding assays, um, like Michelle Glass's lab does, they're they're fairly well standardised, but functional assays looking at whether these things are agonists or not, that that varies quite a bit. I mean, it doesn't vary. uh, It's same ballpark sort of numbers. So you'll see more or less one order of magnitude shift, maybe for potency in most assays. But there is a little bit of variability between the assays because they're looking at different uh, downstream signalling mechanisms usually.
0: Yeah, you're mentioning a lot about your collaboration with other labs, and that's hugely important in... This kind of space, isn't it? Just you know, no lab can do everything, so it's really important that we're collaborating with each other in terms of getting on top of these NPS because there's so many coming out so quickly, it's really hard to get a handle on it.
2: Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. I think collaboration in in this space, in the new psychoactive substances space, is probably more important than almost any other area because you know, no no single organisation can make all the reference standards. Nobody can collect all the no single lab can collect all the preliminary pharmacological data, um, the enormous amount of tox data and you know uh, mass spectra fragmentation data that's out there. So yeah, we've really focused on um, on building these sort of networks of labs doing sometimes the same things where we'll, we'll split tasks so there's no um, redundant sort of activity going on, but also in sharing our findings with various uh, monitoring agencies, um, with toxicologists around the world, sharing those standards with government labs around the world so that we can tackle the problem most effectively with the, without wasting too many resources.
0: So you're synthesizing your own um, molecules, obviously. Are you saying you then share them with other laboratories?
2: Yeah, that's right. So we've, we've got a few ongoing collaborations. Uh, we've shared some of our standards with ChemCenter in WA, with Queensland Health. We have shared them with ESR in New Zealand. And this is both reference standards for parent compounds as well as metabolites. Um, and I have a, a very active collaboration with Professor Roy Girona at UCSF. So he's, he's set up this psychoactive surveillance consortium and analysis network, PSCAN, a little bit of a, a part of his. And the idea with PSCAN is that they actually do clinical confirmation of presentations to emergency departments. He's collaborating across the US with a number of geographically representative hospitals, uh, and they'll actually send him data via REDCap on their patient emissions as well as uh, biological samples for testing. And so he has our entire library of um, both known and sort of prophetic synthetic cannabinoids, and he can then analyse those samples to see if anything new's turned up. Uh, And we have actually found a few new substances this way. So we've detected compounds in the US population at more or less the same time or even slightly before they've been first reported by a a, a Chinese forensics lab, say. So this has happened for a a few molecules already.
0: Interesting. It it must be uh, kind of gratifying in a way to... um be working on something and then you see it actually being used in the population. So there's there's a real relevance there to what's going on in the country.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it, it really shows the value of the work. And it also shows us that the people making these things are thinking sort of like traditional medicinal chemists. There's, there's more randomness to the design, but they are actually using rational design techniques to actually develop new molecules that, that circumvent the law. So it suggests that this approach is working and it can continue to work if we're clever about it.
0: So tell us about those, you know, rational design concepts that you were just talking about. Obviously the people who are making this stuff are pretty smart chemists, but you'll get a drug like cumulpegaclone, for example, and then five F cumulpegaclone comes out a little bit later. So adding on that fluorine there, is that something that is sort of, you know, a bit random, or is that like, oh yeah, we think if we add that on, that's gonna have the kind of effect that we desire?
2: So there's some evidence um that, that, that may have been actually rational design from the cannabinoid pattern literature, and this was work from Macrianus' lab many years ago where he'd made a series of cannabinoids featuring just a simple alkyl ch- uh, chain like a pentyl group, and then shown that if you put a fluorine on the end of them, it actually increases the binding affinity at CB1. So we think some chemists has maybe seen that literature and attempted to emulate it with new scaffolds uh, featuring a, a pentyl subunit. But this idea of swapping out fluorine for hydrogen, which is what's happening in those cases, is actually very well known in medicinal chemistry. So it's one of the, the more common techniques, um, more common examples of bioisosteric substitution. So fluorine is about the same size as a hydrogen atom, but with a greater electronegativity. So we expect that the body will interpret it more or less the same, but it may modify its pharmacology to a given receptor a little bit. Um, and it's very, very widely used in medicinal chemistry, um, which is why you know about 30% of all pharmaceuticals contain a, a fluorine atom.
0: But then you have others coming out as well, which are just completely different structures. So are people in medicinal chemistry working on things that are just completely different to current synthetic cannabinoids that we know about?
2: Yeah, there are. If, if you look at the medicinal chemistry literature, there are literally dozens of CB1 agonist chemotypes out there. So I think it's, it's this trade-off, this compromise for the manufacturers between making the smallest possible change that allows um, you know the material to still be manufactured on scale while circumventing any any current law. So we see this quite a lot where, where a given class is banned or a chemotype is banned. You'll see an almost immediate replacement with something that involves, um, you know, another medicinal tech, chemistry technique like scaffold hopping. So there was a case, we published a paper on this um, a couple of years back, actually. There was a case in Australia uh, where a number of indoles and indazoles had been banned and a colleague of mine had gone down to Victoria and purchased this stuff called Rastaking, I believe it was, and it had disappeared <laughs> off the shelves one day and it had returned a day later, just after this new law had come into effect, banning these two scaffolds. Um, and it had a little sticker saying, you know, contains no, no illegal ingredient, uh, mm-hmm. something to this effect. And uh, when analysed, sure enough, it actually contained uh, seven Aza indole. So that's just a, an analogue where you've moved the nitrogen in indazole to a different position of that same ring. We call this scaffold hopping. It's sort of a, a form of regioisomerism isomerism in this case, but it's basically a, a scaffold hop. You've just changed one core for another but whoever did this wasn't too clever because actually they hadn't interpreted the law correctly and the law actually did, would have included that compound as well. So we went on to show that it's, it is indeed a, a cannabinoid in vitro and that it also shows cannabinoid effects in mice. There's
1: lots of uh, different ways that the law works around the world, isn't there? Whether they call it, a, if it's pharmacologically active or psychoactive, then it's illegal or if it's structurally related. So um, it's pretty difficult to get it right everywhere, I guess.
2: Yeah, I, I don't think any single place has come up with a perfect solution, which is why this problem still exists. I don't think there is necessarily a way to write a single piece of legislation that will cover all bases and and sort of remove these things from the marketplace. It's just too many. There will always be sort of technical loopholes in the way these things are written. So you have some places, some states in the US and some countries in Europe going for a more blanket approach where they ban potentially Every substance that fits a very generic uh, Marcouche structure type definition, but then that has unforeseen consequences because suddenly you've banned, you know, a huge amount of a screening library for a pharmaceutical company potentially and made all of those substances controlled. So things that aren't actually SYNCANs end up getting caught up in these generic legislations. And then in the US, um, you have things like the Controlled Substances Act and the Federal Analogue Act, which... The Controlled Substances Act tends to focus on emergency legislation to ban specific molecules, but the Federal Analogue Act um, gives lawmakers the power to decide in court whether something that's newly appeared is actually an analogue of something that's already illegal. But obviously, you know, that process is a fairly slow one as well.
0: Yeah, it can be frustrating as scientists. Sometimes we get caught up in these legislative changes, which uh, are meant to deter people from using these compounds, but sometimes that legislation has unintended effects on us.
2: Yeah, that, that is sort of one school of thought um, that you hear from a few people is that the attempt to prohibit these substances has driven the market towards more potent and potentially more dangerous substances. And that's certainly what we've seen. If you look at the trends in the US for uh, mass overdoses, mass casualty events, as they're called, they have sort of increased in both size uh, and uh, and recency Fairly consistently for the last couple of years. So, you know, I was speaking to Michael Evans Brown at the EMCDDA about this when I was there, and he said, you know, he never imagined at the start of this when he started monitoring these things, you know, back in 2005, 2010, he said he never imagined a situation where you'd have suddenly hundreds of people overdosing at one location on these substances because it just wasn't a wasn't a thought. But I'm told this is now uh, fairly frequent. The compounds are so potent that you'll see. In UK prisons, for example, um, my colleague Craig McKenzie is looking at use in that population. Um, He said it's not uncommon to see these mass overdose events as like a new compound sweeps through.
0: Yeah, I've seen some of Craig McKenzie's work on that. And it's interesting, yeah, the prison population does seem to be using these compounds as well. It'll be interesting to see in some places in the world as cannabis itself is now being legalised, whether that will have an effect on the use of synthetic cannabinoids. Will they go down now that people have more access to Cannabis, or have some people just gotten used to using these new compounds, and they'll continue with them?
2: Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. I very naively myself thought that you know obviously these compounds have arisen in most places because cannabis is illegal, um, and therefore once cannabis is legalized, we'll see them disappear. But there are there's two sort of interesting counter arguments to that, and one is that you know in Estonia, for example, uh, fentanyl displaced the natural heroin market quite some time ago, and it's as a result it's one of the countries these days where you'll still see a sort of consumer-driven demand for fentanyl itself, even if heroin is available. So mm-hmm. I think whenever a drug substance appears in a market, there will be a user population that gravitates towards that that substance, and as a result, it will probably persist. Um, and the other one is sort of an economic argument. So if you look at somewhere like Colorado, which is one of the first states in the US to broadly uh, legalise recreational cannabis, we still see synthetic cannabinoid use there, and it's, it's amongst the lower socioeconomic groups in Denver, places like this, uh, and the reason for that is that cannabis, even legal cannabis is still kind of expensive. So, you know, you can buy a gram of cannabis, maybe 15 US dollars if you're lucky, but you can buy a packet of synthetic cannabinoids for the same price and probably get many more highs out of that. So if we look at the manufacturing costs of these things, something like AMB and b um, we've done some investigation. You can have maybe a kilogram of that manufactured in China for about 3000 US dollars. And that's close to a million doses uh, at, at a wholesale price. So you're talking about drugs that are very, very cheap to manufacture, and definitely much cheaper than cannabis itself.
0: So you're talking about like dose to dose, I guess there. But are people using these synthetic cannabinoids at the you know recommended dose, if there is such a thing?
2: Uh, well, they're not. They're not exactly you know, GMP formulated <laughs> products, as, as you might imagine. Um, and, and this is very evident from, you know, some of the DA file photos from the southwest of the US where you'll see uh, literal cement mixes being used to blend up herbs and and solvent solutions of various synthetic cannabinoids. But I, d- I don't think the dose is known for many of these things. I think the manufacturers attempt to formulate a dose. The products are extremely um, inhomogeneous, So I, I just think there is no real... There's no uh, safe human dose for sure for any of them because they haven't been trialed clinically, uh, but also the products themselves are just extremely heterogeneous.
0: So talking about safe human doses, there is potential here for these compounds to be used as medicines. And I mean, one, uh, Nabilone uh, is already being used therapeutically as an antiemetic, analgesic. Is there potential for some of these other ones to be used as medicines as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, I definitely think there is. And that's sort of another focus of building these these large libraries of cannabinoids. So Cynabalone is one of these interesting cases where it's a synthetic cannabinoid that's phytocannabinoid-like. So it's very directly modelled on THC. It has a very similar profile pharmacologically to THC. And so it seems like the profile that's desirable for molecules of that type is to um, be a partial agonist or, you know, a, a lower efficacy agonist at CB1, so something that doesn't fully activate the receptor. And that seems to be one of the big differences between uh, therapeutically useful things like THC and nabilone, and some of these syncans. So far, we've only found a couple of syncans that are partial agonists of CB1. Most of them tend to be fully efficacious. Um, and some of them, in a few cases, we found molecules that actually activate the receptor to a greater extent than our, um, our sort of gold standard molecules that we use for normalisation in these assays.
0: So I guess, as you were saying before, the endocannabinoid system is so complex and it has it interacts with so many other systems within the body. I guess it's hard to find a compound that produces the desired effects without also producing unwanted effects.
2: Yeah, that that's, tends to be true. Um, so, so we know a little bit about what sort of profile we want for a CB1 agonist uh, in terms of its partial activation of the receptor, but there are also other clever ways to have... Um, more focused effects of a a given molecule and we've actually discovered a few of these serendipitously as well so one of the things that's been of interest to a lot of people is you know can you get some some of these remonobant like effects in obesity and other indications without blocking brain cb1 receptors and so this is termed um, peripheral restriction so you can develop these peripherally restricted cb1 antagonists or agonists and they may have effects in things like obesity or pain without affecting the the brain cannabinoid system So we've actually uh, discovered a few molecules in some of these libraries where we show at the receptor level that they are CB1 agonists, but when we put them into a mouse, they don't do anything. We can show with some pharmacokinetic modeling that, in fact, they're not really broken down particularly quickly, but it just seems like they're not getting into the brain because all of the effects that we measure using biotelemetry are all brain CB1-driven effects. So these are sort of interesting molecules then to look at as lead structures for the development of new uh, therapeutic compounds in, in many different indications.
0: And what about uh, the delivery of these drugs? I mean, cannabis itself is often smoked, uh, but you can use it orally as well, intranasally. Um, What work's being done on the delivery systems for these new drugs?
2: Um, Well, yeah, if you have a look at at Craig McKenzie's work in in the UK prisons, people are getting very, very innovative. So obviously these products historically, most of these substances are powders. Some of them are sort of resins or oils. Typically they were blended on onto herbal matter so that you could smoke them as a cannabis substitute um, since then we've seen the emergence of things like faux hash so this is like a synthetic material that's made to look like hash resin where synthetic cannabinoids have been sort of blended into those we've seen edibles so brownies and things that have just been laced directly with synthetic cannabinoids um, we've seen oil so um, sorry vaping cartridges so um, for electronic cigarette type products we've seen in, in some very concerning cases parents have bought CBD products for epileptic children and things and these have actually been found to contain synthetic cannabinoids rather than CBD but I think that the most innovative stuff which really goes to show the the increasing potency of these compounds is some of the work that Craig and others have done showing that people are now infusing these onto bits of paper like blotter. I believe the Freiburg groups also looked at this a little bit so you'll have prisoners um, receiving letters from outside where the letters are coded to indicate where some amount of synthetic cannabinoid has actually been you know dissolved and evaporated and impregnated into the paper. Um, and then these bits of paper are sort of torn up, and uh, I'm told by Craig sometimes they're even um, ignited using mains electricity through like a sort of juice bottle bong style system. So <laughs> pretty pretty dangerous beyond even just the the can itself.
0: And so with the um, when you're trying to work out the effects of these synthetic cannabinoids, potentially for use as medicines, one of the complicating things is that they obviously metabolize in the body. And some of those metabolites may also have pharmacological effects itself.
2: Yeah, and we've seen quite a lot of this already. So two areas that I find particularly interesting are manufacturing impurities and metabolites and characterizing those in terms of their pharmacology. So we occasionally read reports about an interesting looking molecule that's been Detected in a seizure, but it looks to me like maybe it's just a manufacturing impurity that's been then isolated and sold as a material itself without really much rational design. So when we've looked at some of these things, I mean the, the best examples are the uh, positional isomers of some of the indazoles. So we see sort of two regioisomeric sets for each of those uh, in a lot of cases, and we've actually shown that the regioisomers, which would be a manufacturing byproduct, they're also active as cannabinoids, less mm-hmm. potently so, um, but but they're also active. Um, if you look at Metabolites. I mean, that gets even more complicated. So, uh, we a number of groups, including ours, have shown that some of these things have very, very different pharmacological profiles to the uh, to the parent compound. So, you'll see things like hydroxylated metabolites acting as potent CB2 rather than CB1 agonists, and then once they're glucuronidated, they actually function as a CB1 antagonist. So, very, very complex pharmacology when you think that uh, THC has you know has several metabolites, but it has only one sort of major bioactive metabolite, the 11-hydroxy THC. then it's conjugated for excretion whereas these synthetic cannabinoids might produce you know four or five major metabolites uh, and each of those are subject to secondary metabolism and all of those compounds might be bioactive so that's definitely a point of concern when analyzing these things Um, and the other the other effect that um, my colleague Richard Kevin and others at RTI have looked at uh, is the fact that these things are combusted so the pyrolysis products become sort of degradants that are also bioactive so definitely some of the more uh, complex pharmacology that you could consider based on sort of synthesis metabolism and also the the, um, route of administration of these substances
0: yeah it really is a fascinating time to be looking into this kind of stuff because i mean the study of these cannabinoids cannabis itself it's really only been going for the last 50 years or so since we discovered you know thc was the main uh, active compound and so it just feels like it's it's exploding this whole field
2: yeah it really is i mean a lot of the early work was done by um, Raphael Mechoulam at Hebrew University, who's obviously a legend in the field. Um, and It's contributed a huge amount, uh, along with others, to the early cannabinoid science um, as a field. But given that this plant was prohibited you know, for much of the, the past century in many parts of the world, that's really slowed down research. So researchers in the US, for example, had to obtain their materials for any cannabis studies from a single site um, at the University of Mississippi after getting extensive approvals from the DEA um, and the NIH and things. So yeah, it legislatively, it was very tricky to do this work. And obviously that's now changing with sort of rollback of of a lot of the prohibition in many countries, which is enabling a lot of research to be carried out.
0: All right. Thanks very much for joining us, Sam. It's been uh, very interesting. I'm sure our listeners will really uh, enjoy hearing more about synthetic cannabinoids. And, um, There's going to be a lot more research coming out in this space obviously you're you're publishing a lot and there's a lot of other groups that you've mentioned around the world who are also doing really interesting work in this space so keep an eye on the literature everyone and uh thanks again sam
2: yeah thank you very much for
1: having me on a big shout out to david brown from chem center wa who recommended we speak to samuel
0: and if you want to find out more about the endocannabinoid system which we touched on a little bit on this episode Marilyn Hustest has done an excellent online lecture for TAFT members, which is available through the, their Facebook group, and I think it's going to be available through the website as well. So if you're a TAFT member, go and check that out. It's a really great lecture. And if you're not a TF member. You should be. Why not consider joining? <laughs> Get access to that and a lot of other great content. And if you want to contact us, you can email us at thetoxpod at sa.gov.au.
1: And if you think there are any, any specific people you think we should interview to talk about specific subjects, please send us an email. See you next week. Bye.
2: Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at wwwtft 2024org We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring,
0: engaging and enlightening conference.